Well, it's a, uh, a privilege to be with all of you today. I'm uh, Jimmy Decker. I uh, get the privilege to uh, get to pastor this 930 contemporary service. I also get to oversee our, um, our uh, uh, program ministry, so our, our adults, our students, our children, etc. And um, I didn't know that I needed that, uh, that message from Miss Rachel today, because uh, after that freeze, I was looking at our flower beds and like, hey, y'all... I'm gonna need more than Jesus to bring those plants back because those things are dead, um, and we just we just replaced them, and it's just really depressing. Um, but it, it is great to kind of be here. It's great to get to be out of the house, and I'm really excited to be here today because um, today, uh, as we continue in our, our worship series, we are um, going through all the different names of. Christ. So what are the different names, the different metaphors that were ascribed to him in scripture? And so we've looked at things like the Alpha and Omega, the Good Shepherd, etc. And today I was particularly excited for uh, what this uh, title was going to be because when I first read this, I thought this said um, uh, bread and wine. And um, I was like, let's go to Kenny's Italian. Let's do this. This is going to be a good uh, day. And then I was probably more disappointed than I should have been when I reread it and I read Vine. Uh, but then I got to thinking about, like, there actually is some real goodness to how those things actually intermingle and what they mean for our lives. Uh, and so we're going to start with the concept of Jesus being the bread of life. And that goes uh, from a, a passage in the book of John, in John 6, uh, where it says this. Uh, it says, Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, will never go thirsty. The basic kind of framework of that, the basic uh, uh, message in that is this idea that Jesus is this provider of sustenance, this provider of the thing that we need. Uh, and, and the concept of bread is, is so effective there because from a kind of a historical perspective, when you look at the lives that people were living back then, bread was essential, even more so than I think we understand it today. See, because uh, back then, the primary goal of most people when they woke up every single day was to do whatever they needed to do in order to, pro to, to procure enough food to survive that day and get to the next day. Like, this was the primary driving motivation of every single moment of existence for most people if you go back in time. This idea where uh, readily available food for the masses is really only a few hundred years old, uh, but for the thousands of years before that, every single day there was an effort that was made to how are we going to find food. Uh, and bread was this thing that was actually the, uh, the element of food that was more readily available than most. Uh, and for that, uh, bread became this staple amongst all cultures. There is not a single culture in uh, a human history, in human existence, that does not have some form of bread that serves as kind of like this basic uh, necessity, this basic starch, this basic element of their overall diet. Because every single culture has the ability to take flour, mix it, with, uh, mix it with some water, and bake it in order to provide something that you can survive on. 
And so when Jesus talks about being the bread of life, he's, he's trying to provide this, uh, this encouragement of uh, you are all eating bread as a way to physically survive, and I'm telling you that I'm going to provide a way for you to spiritually survive as well. And this was consistent with Jesus all the way back through the Old Testament and everything we saw through God in the Old Testament because you look back through the Old Testament and you see that God would provide to the Israelites when they were lost in the desert through by way of, uh, of manna that would come down from heaven and that's what they would eat every single day. You uh, saw this in the book of Daniel where uh, Daniel and his, uh, and his uh, three friends were um, in, uh, in captivity effectively and while they were there, God provided them sustenance in order to survive not only survive, but in fact actually thrive, get stronger. It's actually why the song we sing before worship, or before the, before, uh, the sermon, uh, uh, Jaira, literally is translated as the God who provides. Like it's, a, it's an Old Testament name for God, and it literally means the God who provides. It's why uh, in, the, in the New Testament, when Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray, Jesus talks with them and says, um, uh, he gives them the Lord's Prayer, and he gets to the place where he says, and give us this day our daily bread. Because the idea of daily sustenance, daily nourishment, is a thing that made sense to most people. And Jesus uh, is saying that when you pray, pray for the daily bread, the daily allotment of what you need to get through. Not necessarily that you need to live in squalor, not necessarily that you need to live in abundance, but basically saying, God, give me what I need to get through this day. And this is something that uh, I think that kind of in that modern context, we kind of lose sight of a little bit. But actually when praying that, praying it with the mentality of, God, give me whatever I need to process and get through what I'm going through, be that strength, be that mercy, be that peace, be that physical food, be that um, uh, financial uh, uh, peace of mind, whatever it is that I need to get through today, God, give me that. This is the idea of give us this day our daily bread, and this is what Jesus promises to be as the bread of life. And the thing about that is, when I think about what it means to have the daily bread, that is a harder concept. Because like when I go to a restaurant, obviously, I'm like, listen, two appetizers, two desserts, let's do this. Like however much food that we can possibly get, there is no daily bread allotment there. There is, let's see how many calories we can consume in one sitting. And it's absolutely phenomenal. And I uh, think about that. And uh, I think about that and try to like pair that up and go, okay, so what does this mean then with my daily life? And I think that pairing that then with the idea of the true vine is so critical when I think about what it means for a plant to grow. Because when you think about a plant growing, like a plant needs the same level of sustenance, right? It needs like certain elements in order to grow effectively, right? Like certain amounts of uh, light, certain amount of water, etc. And if Jesus is that true vine, and we, we pair this idea of Jesus providing the basic sustenance, the basic needs, with the fact of, of promising to grow and thrive in a way that vines do, then what does that mean for our daily life? Because when Jesus talks about being the true vine, uh, it's actually later in the book of John. Uh, it's a... Uh, nine chapters later in uh, John 15, he says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. And while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me and I will also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, 
You are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me, my words remain in you. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you, i.e. a daily bread. This is my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Now, when I think about gardening and when I think about plant life, etc., I remind myself that I know nothing about any of that, as evidenced by all of my plants dying from the freeze. Um, but I am a millennial, so I, I know what herbology is from Harry Potter, and I know what <laughs> photosynthesis is, and I know that mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. So because I can combine all three of those things, I know that there are certain elements that are necessary for a plant to thrive. And Jesus is making this uh, claim that uh, if, if we are attached to him, we will bear fruit. And so the question for us has to be, what does it look like for us to be attached to Jesus? What does that mean for us? And I think so much of it comes down to what our priorities are, frankly. Because if our priorities are in line, that seems to make sense. But when we start to try to determine how we can live in two different worlds at one time, when we can try to attach ourselves to multiple vines, multiple roots, that's when things get a little bit tricky for us. This is one of the most uh, um, regular and difficult conversations I think that um, myself and Arthur, I know for a fact, have both had. Uh, but I think a lot of pastors end up having these conversations with people where um, uh, the argument of how is it that I balance the different responsibilities in my life? We see this particularly with, um, you know, like work-life balance. So, you know, like how do I balance, you know, like my work schedule with my home schedule? I want to give my work the hours that it needs, but I want to give my family the time that it needs and all my hobbies the time that they need. And that's an absolute real thing. But even beyond that, the big conversation that, uh, that I've had so many times effectively goes like this where a guy will come to me and go, hey, I, I'm just, I'm struggling. Can I use some advice? Can I talk through some stuff? Absolutely, would love to. Let's go grab coffee. And so we go have coffee together and, and he's talking with me and he goes, well, listen, I'm in sales. Awesome. And um, I'm in this place where I can close this deal with my client. And if I close this deal with my client, it's gonna set my family up financially in a beautiful way. And I'm like, awesome. Go close the deal. ABCs, always be closing. Like, that's a whole thing, right? Ben Affleck taught us that. And so because of that, what's the problem here? Go close the deal. And he goes, well, no, the, 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 the problem with it is this. In order for me to close the deal, the client wants me to go to a less than reputable location to close that deal. Oh, and my, my wife isn't thrilled with that idea. I wouldn't imagine so. <laughs> and so I don't know what to do. What do I do in this moment? The funny thing is, is that's not even, an, an, like that, that is literally a generic conversation that I've had more times than I can count as a pastor. And I always look at him and I go, listen, it's not my job to tell you what to do. I'm not, I'm not you, I'm not, I don't live your life. I don't, I don't, know, I don't know your work dynamics. I don't know your, your home dynamics. I don't know. And so my question for you is, who do you want to be? Right, like at the end of the day, where do you, where do you want your roots to be? Where do, you, where do you feel like you're actually going to thrive? Because if you can figure that out, 
then the answer is going to become pretty clear. Now, the truth is they end up asking that question oftentimes because they, they, they know what the real answer is, but they don't, want to, they don't want to buy into that. And I can understand that. That is a hard concept. But the truth is, is that if we can buy into what it means to have our roots planted in some other vine, in some other soil, in some other conditions, we're going to thrive so much more than if we try to be in some other situation. Right? Like if we put ourselves uh, attached to this vine that is complicated, that is difficult, that hurts the people around us or, or makes things difficult for our, for our personal lives or for our professional lives, etc., if we focus on just those two elements, we're ending up planting ourselves in this place where we're not actually going to get the basic necessities, the basic substances that we need in order to thrive. And so part of my encouragement is always like, listen, what does it mean for you to, to, to kind of remove yourself from that and instead actually attach yourself back to the foundation of Jesus? And I know that's like the easy pastor answer, but it's actually the right answer. If you can attach yourself to the vine of Jesus, then what would that look like in this scenario? And focus on that. Because the cool thing about it is no matter where we are, no matter what we've done, even if we have made mistakes in our past lives and we go, I I don't want to be in that quote-unquote soil anymore, if I want to be in a better location in order to actually thrive and grow and bear fruit and flourish, there actually is a mechanism for that. In, the, uh, in, a, uh, in a literal sense, in a scientific sense, this is known as grafting, right? Where you can take a branch from a tree that's starting to wither, that's starting to die, that's starting to like, just be awful. You can take that branch and you can attach it to a healthy tree and it will thrive, right? A healthy tree that has the right amount of sunlight, that has the right amount of water, that has the right amount of nutrients, etc., and that plant will thrive. Now, what's really fascinating that I had always thought about this until I like, learned, because I did way more researching on grafting and plants and everything this week than I expected to. Um, and as I was doing that, what I learned, I always just assumed that like, when you graft a plant together, like, effectively like, one plant assimilates into the other one. So like, I just assumed that, like, let's say you have a cherry tree and a peach tree, and let's, take, let's say you take a branch from the cherry tree and you graft it onto the peach tree. I just assumed that the cherry branch would eventually start making peaches right? Because I, I, that makes more sense to me. Um, or that like, they would make this like, weird hybrid cherry peach thing. Um, but that's, I did. I really thought that was a thing, right? And I was Googling cherry peaches, and that wasn't a thing. Um, and so uh, like, literally, if you, uh, as, you, um, as you graft those two things together, what ends up happening is the branch of cherries continues to just make cherries. And the rest of the peach tree just continues to make peaches, but they both actually end up thriving and being way more, uh, way more prosperous than they would be otherwise. And what's really incredible about this is this isn't even like a modern, like a modern invention. This isn't even a modern context. This is literally a way in which the early Christian church talked about what it meant to live a faithful and Christian life. Because in uh, Paul's letter to the Romans, it literally says, um, I'm talking to you Gentiles, Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection but reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, then so are the branches. Effectively, real quick, context. Um, uh, uh, Paul is talking to this Gentile population who feels as though they're not worthy of getting to follow Jesus because they weren't raised in a Jewish household. And Paul is making this claim that, like, literally, doesn't matter. 
where you came from. If the root is holy and you attach yourself to the holy root, then everything else is good. And I'm working on my Jewish friends over there because they don't see that yet. My hope is that one day they will, but I'm talking to you right now and you just need to know, follow Jesus and that's all you need. And this is why he goes on to say then, he goes, if some of the branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others, now share in the same nourishing sap of the olive root. Do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root. The root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, yes, but they were broken off because of their unbelief i.e. this idea that you can have as much people grafted into the root as possible. You don't have to break off. It's not like there's like a, a, a finite amount of Jesus's love. We can attach as many branches to the tree as we want to. Do not, uh, uh, do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. This is what it means for us to be grafted in. You'll notice what he says there is not you need to assimilate and become like the Jewish population. It was not, well, if you just hide yourself or if you change yourself and whatnot, they won't even notice that you weren't Jewish to begin with. That's why grafting actually is the perfect analogy about Jesus as the true vine, because as we graft onto this solid, holy, good root, it's not a conversation about us losing ourselves in the process. It's actually a conversation about us finding our original purpose to begin with. It's about finding the fact that God has made all these different unique individuals and has called and encouraged those unique individuals to bear fruit in different ways. And this was Paul's like encouragement to the Israelite, or I'm sorry, to the Gentile population, where he said, listen, like to the Gentiles and to the Jews, I, I know that you guys are doing different things and that's cool, that's fine, I love that. And at the end of the day, if, like, if this new Gentile population who's coming to worship Jesus, who's coming to worship this Messiah, they're doing something that detracts from their, uh, from their ability to faithfully adhere to the words of Jesus, then yes, we should call them out on that. That's not good. But if they're just doing something different, i.e. if they're like uh, having different food than what you're having, at the end of the day, that's fine. That's not going to prevent Jesus' grace being able to be poured out upon them. And the truth is, is that I'm... Or the truth is that we're going to all realize that the Gentiles are going to bear fruit in different ways than we could. It's why he says, I relish in being, a, uh, uh, being an apostle to the Gentiles. He's bearing fruit differently than the way that Peter was bearing fruit, and Peter was very much kind of the apostle to the Jews. And at the end of the day, if we buy into this idea that everybody can be grafted into the holy root of, of Jesus, this holy true vine of Jesus, and that branches aren't broken off in order to make room, but that everybody has the ability to be grafted in, you can make something truly beautiful as a result of it. Here's what I mean by it. I'm going to show a picture behind me. That is known as the tree of 40 fruits. This is a project by an arborist um, uh, where um, uh, what he did is he decided to graft 40 different fruit trees together. 
And this is in rendering because it hasn't been fully uh, matured yet, but this is what it is going to look like when it is in full bloom. And it's going to be able to produce fruit for the entirety of the year. And it produces peaches and plums and cherries and all these other different types of fruit. This is honestly what the Christian church can look like. And it's beautiful. Because it allows each of us to realize that God has made us unique in some way, some capacity to go forth and to bear fruit for the world around us. And the question is, so what does bearing fruit actually look like? And it's a really great question because sometimes bearing fruit looks like spiritual growth, right? There's literally a thing called the fruits of the spirit where we embody love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. This is a thing that it means to bear fruit, but it also means going forth and spreading the gospel for others. There's an old adage of what is the purpose of an apple tree? And most of us say, well, the purpose of an apple tree is to make apples. No, the purpose of an apple tree is to make more apple trees. This is what it means to be an apostle. It's what it means to be a disciple, that we become messengers, that we spread this love of Christ to others so that they themselves might get to spread it as well. And so in terms of thinking about the, uh, you know, the, the case study from earlier, the question is really, what decision is going to help you bear fruit for Christ? Because if you can truly look at what your decision is and you truly believe that that decision is going to help you do that, then it's holy and it's good. And if it's not, then it's not something you should focus on. Because if it's holy and it's good, this is our future. And if it's not, then our future looks like the tree in Miss Rachel's video. This is what the apostles understood. They understood what it meant to get the basic necessities. They understood what it meant to go forth and to spread the gospel narrative to others. And they understood that sometimes it's just a basic message. It's why there's a thing known as the Apostles' Creed. It's the absolute basics. It is the bread of life. And in that Apostles' Creed, it's a conversation about what are the bare minimum essentials that we need, the bread, the flour, the wheat, the water, to graft ourselves to the true vine. So what I want to do is I want to show a video from, uh, from Lauren Gerlach. She's our uh, adult ministry pastor. She's also one of the more brilliant uh, teachers I've ever met. She is to biblical history as I am to 90s pop culture. She very much uh, uh, gets it. So um, she's going to teach us a little bit about the Apostles' Creed, and then we're going to actually close with that Apostles' Creed. Take a look. My name is Reverend Lauren Gerlach, and I'm so glad to be with you again for our Nicene Creed and Creed in general mini-series that we're doing alongside the Christology titles of Christ. This week, we're going to be talking about the Apostles' Creed. We've in the past been talking about the Nicene Creed and how that was formed at the Council of Nicaea. Remember? Big group project. The Apostles' Creed is not too different, except for the fact it might be a smaller group project. <laughs> It's not so much formed at a council, but it's also not formed by just the apostles, given its title that might be confusing. The Apostles' Creed really is born out of the questions and responses that were asked to newly baptized Christians. So picture this, in the second century, as people are starting to learn of the Christian faith, they wanna join in. It's compelling, it's mysterious, 
in some ways that's endearing and it's inviting. Christian love is something that looks so different than the world that the second century people have yet to see. So you can imagine as they want to join into this Christian faith circle, and of course the apostles are very excited to welcome them in, there's still sort of a vetting process, if you will, still sort of a buy-in process where they want to make sure that everyone is on the same page. That's all it is. We want to make sure that we're all pulling in the same direction, if you will, if we're all sharing the same claims. Why was this such a big deal to them? They live in a world where so many people have different opinions and positioning about this recent event that happened. What was the event? This guy, Jesus of Nazareth, he was born and lived and died, but then he rose? That event is what has caused so much confusion and interest in these second and third century Christians. As they start to lean into it, they want to be baptized. They want to be enfolded into the faith that they're hearing about. And how do they do that? None other than writing a statement of belief. The root word of creed is credo, means I believe. The Apostles' Creed really comes from those first and second century Christians signing up, desiring to be baptized, saying, I believe X, Y, Z. I believe all of these statements that are yet to follow. And so they boldly proclaim these and then look and they see that every part of the essentials is included and they pass it down and they pass it down. And so this Sunday, every Sunday, usually at St. Andrew here, we say the Apostles' Creed. We say it as an affirmation of faith or a profession of faith. So let it not be lost on us that we are carrying forward the original credo, the original belief. As the band's coming up, uh, I wanna invite you to stand. And today, rather than closing in prayer, we're gonna close in the thing that unifies us, the thing that attaches us and grafts us to the holy root that is Christ. Will you join me in the words of the Apostles' Creed? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. On the third day he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.